Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And And you're you're listening listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast, where F is for Fleming. Ian Fleming, once again. Uh, my name is Tom Butler, as always. And joining me as we cast another golden eye over the life of the James Bond creator is a man well acquainted with the facts of death, Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello. And uh, a man whose chill level is always set to zero minus ten. It's Mr. Tom Wheatley. It's a good one, that one. I like that. <laughs> and joining put more us effort into that one than usual. <laughs> and joining us live at five for this episode is our very special guest, Mr. Raymond Benson. Hello, Raymond. Hello, everybody. How are you? Very well, thank you very good, much. Thank you. Very good. Now, of course, Raymond is the author of one of the Bond Bibles that we refer to a lot, the James Bond Bedtime Companion. Um, He's also worked on James Bond video games, has written many Bond novels and novelizations. And also he plays a mean suite of James Bond music on the piano I've listened to this week. Um, Is there anything we've missed there? Oh, that that covers it enough. Um, now, I've uh, listened to a great many interviews with you before, uh, Raymond, um, and there are some, uh, many great ones online. Instead of retreading a lot of the same ground, uh, today we'd really like to speak to you about your work on The Companion and the research that you did uh, on, on Mr. Ian Fleming. But um, I guess just to kick things off, one thing that I read about you, you started off with the Bond films with Goldfinger. Do you, what was it about that film that really hooked you in, do you think, at that early age? Well, I would say the very first thing was the music. Um, I was uh, I was growing up in a small West Texas town, and I, I was nine years old. And uh, next door were two girls that uh, I would, uh, you know, play with. And I was over at their house, and I heard this music coming out of the stereo. And it was the Goldfinger soundtrack. And I'm going, what is this music? This is so cool. And the mom, you know, the girl's mom said, oh, it's this movie that's playing downtown. It's the, you know, the new James Bond movie called Goldfinger. And I looked at the record and, I'm, you know, it looked, you know, I'm nine years old, remember, you know, so the libido is just kind of starting to kick in. And I see in the, you know, the pictures of the girls and stuff and this cool guy, Sean Connery and everything. And I'm going, wow, this looks really cool. And so I went home and I told my dad, I said, Dad, we got to go see Goldfinger. <laughs> and he went, hmm. <laughs> and he went, okay, I want to see it too. So my dad took me and we saw Goldfinger. And um, 
you know, in that time and that day, nothing like that was on the screen. Nothing. You know, it was it was the Star Wars of uh, the 1960s. Believe me. Uh, and I went nuts. And a lot of the guys my age, you know, the young, young, young boys and men uh, just fell in love with James Bond. And I also noticed that the mom next door of the girls, she was reading the books. She had Ian Fleming paperbacks. And I was looking at those and I said, oh, I want to read these. And I went to the, my public library and, and they had them, you know, so I, I started reading Ian Fleming at nine and 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe some of it kind of went over my head at that time, but I got the story. You know, I was, I was able to comprehend the story and I just, you know, I became a full fledged fan, you know, and, and just a few months later, probably about five months later, six months later, the double bill of Dr. No and from Russia with love came out. So I saw the first two movies within six months, you know, of Goldfinger. And then within the year, I saw Thunderball. So in one year, I saw the first four films on the big screen and had started reading the books. So if that didn't damage me for life, I don't know what else uh, <laughs> could. Uh, and of course, I've reread, I've reread the books over and over, you know. It certainly paid off in the long run. Yeah, I guess. But who would have thought back then, you know? <laughs> mm. Um <laughs> And I, you know, I reread the books occasionally as I grew older, and I probably, I've probably read the whole Fleming series eight times, nine times, something like that. Yeah. They're, once you get started on them, though, they are addictive, aren't they? You, oh, yeah. you just have to go on to, straight on to the next one. I reread them over the pandemic, over the lockdown last year. You know, when we were, you know, when we were still trying to figure everything out and. Nobody was going anywhere. I, I reread all 14. So that was great. Yeah, I guess it's like a certain comfort in, in revisiting the stuff that you uh, enjoyed um, at an early age. Do you have a favorite of the Fleming Bond books? I would say From Russia With Love. Uh, yeah. It's pretty easily my favorite, followed by Dr. No. And I think those two are really, you know, together. They're kind of the quintessential. If you've never read a, a Bond novel, read you have to read both of them since for Russia with love ends with a cliffhanger. <laughs> uh, but I think they really capture what, what, what it was all about. Uh, and what was it all about? I mean, what, what, what do you think uh, is the key appeal of the, of, of the Fleming bond books? Um, I guess coming at them at the age of nine, that sort of echoes with what Fleming always said was, you know, he writes for like, the boys teenage own, boy in all yeah, of those. Yeah, yeah. They were boys' own adventure tales. Uh, exactly. That's what they were. Um, they, you know, and at the time, I, you know, I wasn't reading Mickey Spillane or Raymond Chandler or, or any of that other stuff. Um, this was this was really kind of the only spy fiction that I was sort of attuned to at that age. So it was a whole new world. It was a whole. Uh, uh, modern i guess at the time it was very modern um take on on the world and there was this cool as hell character and uh the stories were were ripping yarns <laughs> and they were sexy you know they were considered uh racy books back then you know there i i knew other friends of mine you know their parents wouldn't let them read them and they would sneak them under the covers with a flashlight you know and that kind of thing um so 
you had you had all that. You had uh, the sex snobbery and sadism, as uh, as uh, one of the critics put it, um, <laughs> and that was uh, it. Was exciting. It was it was all all very new and cool. And then your your interest uh, as you grew older slightly waned. Perhaps is that fair to say? Well, uh, you know, I I grew up. I became a normal person. Uh, I went to college. You know, by the by the 70s, I was in college and, you know, by then Roger Moore had gotten in and the movies had changed, as we all know. Uh, you know, the early ones were were action thrillers and then they became action comedies. And I went to see them as they came out, you know, dutifully and, you know, enjoyed them. But I just wasn't, you know, totally sold. <laughs> <laughs> on those on those particular in that era basically uh but when we got to the 80s when uh, for your eyes only came out that was different and we all know why um it was more down to earth it used more fleming material which i immediately recognized when i saw the movie i went oh my gosh they're using the short story uh Risico and and the short story for your eyes only, you know, <laughs> I remembered that. And um, that same year, the first John Gardner book came out, License Renewed. So that uh, the book and the movie kind of renewed my interest. So I went back and started reading the books again that year in 1981. And toward the end of the summer, uh, I decided, you know, I want to I want to write a book. Well, I've told this story uh, many times. Uh, I was sitting with some friends and the question came up, if you had to write a book, what would you write? And we all kind of went around the room. And when I, it came to me, I just said, I'd like to, I'd like to write like a coffee table book, uh, an encyclopedia about the history of James Bond, because I wanted one. There wasn't one, you know, I mean, there were some books, there were a couple of books on the movies themselves. Uh, there was a couple of biographies of Ian Fleming. There was a couple of books about the books. A lot of those were already out of print and you couldn't find them. Um, and I wanted all of that in one book, you know, a history, a biography, analyses and critiques of all the movies in the books. Uh, and I wanted to create it since there didn't want, one didn't exist. So I, I thought I could do it. I don't know why I thought I could do it, but uh, I did. And when I said that, everybody around the room went, you ought to do that, you know, because you know a lot about James Bond. They knew I did. Um, so I started investigating how to <laughs> how to go about getting a book published. I had a friend who um, became a, a very successful film director, actually. He had written a, a joke book uh, that got published. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked him, how, how did you get that published? And he, you know, he kind of went, he told me, he introduced me to his editor at, at his publisher. So I got a meeting with her and I told her what I wanted to do. And she went, oh, that's a really good idea. Why don't you write me a proposal? And I went, okay, how do I do that? And so she, t she told me, this is what you need in a proposal. So I went home, I did that, I turned it in and I got a contract the next day. Incredible. Just like that. Yeah. It doesn't work like, like, like that today. <laughs> but in 1981, that's how it worked. It must have been nowadays when people write these sort of compendium books, the, the amount of information that's really easily accessible about this 
these subjects that people are covering, it's it's quite easy to get hold of it because it just exists. People have already written books, there's websites and things. But at that point, did you realise how big an undertaking no, that was? Because no. it, cause by that point, there had been, what, 20 years or so of, of this information out there. Right. Uh, yeah, I didn't know how long it, would, it was going to take me. Um, it actually ended up taking three years to do the book. Wow, okay. Uh, did, and did it... Go ahead. Sorry, I was, I was just going to ask before you start, did, did any of the other books around that table get written that day? That uh, nobody, no, nobody else wrote a book. Just yours, just, just yours. Just <laughs> and, and at the time, I was working in theater. I was a, I was a stage director and a music composer. Uh, work, I was living in New York at the time, New York City. So I, was, I had a day job, and then I was doing theater at night and researching this book for, for three years. Uh, that's probably why it took so long, because I, I wasn't doing it full time. But uh, I started, I, I first I went to the Lilly Library in Indiana University, where they have all of Ian Fleming's manuscripts. And I studied those. Uh, I reread all the books. Uh, and I was able to contact, the first person I contacted was Al Hart, who was the American editor of Fleming's first seven books at Macmillan, the publisher Macmillan that did the first seven books. And he was still living in New York. And I had a meeting with him and he was great. He, he you know, was very forthcoming, uh, talked a lot about the editing process. And, and, and then he gave me some names, you know, oh, you need to talk to Ernest Cuneo. You need to talk to Claire Blanchard. You need to talk to so, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. Naomi Burton, who was uh, Fleming's American agent, uh, and so forth. So he gave me these contacts, uh, and I started just... It, it, was like a, it was like a networking thing where I would contact one person, and they, then they would put me in touch with two other people. You know, that thing. And also, uh, at the very beginning, I wrote to... Um, what was called Glidrose at the time, you know, now it's called Ian Fleming Publications, but Glidrose was the, the, the literary company. I wrote to them and said, hey, I'm, I'm going to write this book. <laughs> and I would, uh, I would like to use some quotations from the, the novels and blah, blah, blah. And they basically said, no, we're not going to help you. Mm. And I also wrote to Eon and I said, I'm writing this book. I'm hoping, you know, I can talk to somebody, maybe get some photos. And they said, no, we're not going to help you. <laughs> Wow. And my publisher said, don't let it stop you. Just keep going. Well, eventually, uh, I got to be uh, very friendly with a woman named Claire Blanchard, who had worked with Ian Fleming in intelligence during World War II. He was, wow. her, he was her boss. And uh, after the war, she worked for Fleming and Ernest Cuneo in the North American Newspaper Alliance. So she, was, she became a journalist working under Fleming. Uh, so they, they were really good friends ever since the war. And Fleming would actually give her uh, his manuscripts to read, to critique hmm. the novels. That's how good friends they were. And, uh, I mean, she, she, her name is not really well known in, in the Bond, you know, fandom circles. But uh, uh, she, she was kind of a key figure. And so she was she was in New York. No, she was in, in she was in England when I contacted her. Oh, OK. OK. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she did live in New York in the right. for, in the 40s or 50, early 50s or something like and that. And is that early. when Fleming worked with her in intelligence when he was in America? 
when no when he during the war when he was in england she in was england. she was okay. she was stationed in ceylon okay and of course he was he was her handler right right um, wow. anyway um so once i got hold of her she she was very interested in working with me and we wrote a lot of letters back and forth she said look you're just going to have to come to england i can get you in touch with ivor bryce uh, I can put you in touch with Robert Harling, who was a member of uh, the 30 AU and was one of Fleming's best friends and so forth. So I made the arrangements in the summer of 1982 to go to England. And that was my first trip wow. to England, too. So I stayed at Claire's flat and she came through and got me in touch with all these people. And uh, prior to that, I had gone to Washington, D.C. and met with Ernest Cuneo. Now, Cuneo was probably um, uh, Fleming's best American friend, his closest American friend. And yeah. this, this guy was a character. He, he was <laughs> something else. Uh, and we became really close, he and I. Even after the book came out, we stayed in touch. He would call me every week, just a, just a gab. I think he was lonely <laughs> <laughs> until he died. He died in 1988. He, you know, he worked for Bill Donovan. Right. War. So he 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 met and he's U.S. intelligence. Yes. Is that right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The OSS. Yeah. So he met Fleming then during the war. That's when they got to know each other, and then they became partners in this newspaper thing after the war, and they stayed they stayed friends. And and as you know, he was the guy who uh, came up with the initial outline of the plot of Thunderball. Right. And that's why the novel Thunderball is dedicated to him. And is there a character in one of the books named after him? Is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's in is Diamonds it... Are Forever. Diamonds, they, they, yeah. They spell it Curio, not Cuneo. Ernie, yeah. Ernie Curio. Yeah, and he's a cab driver. That's right, that's right. So just to put it in context, you're speaking to these guys in the early 1980s. And Ian Fleming's been dead at this point by for 20 years. Almost, yeah. But for them, obviously... I guess their memories and their reminiscences were really important for your book because yes. they're a direct contact with Fleming and it's about as close as you can get, right? Right, yeah. And I also met uh, Ian Fleming's stepdaughter, Fionn, Fionn Morgan, and Nicholas Fleming, who was his uh, nephew by Peter, you know, Peter's son, Peter Fleming's son, uh, and uh, Robert Harling. And there were some, oh, and, and Kingsley Amos. I got to spend a, a, an afternoon with Kingsley Amos and John Pearson. And and also, you know, once once I I got the trip organized, I wrote back to Glidrose. And I said, hey, I'm coming to England and I'm meeting with Ivor Bryce and Robert Harling and Kingsley Amos and all these people. Couldn't I come by and, you know, say hello? <laughs> and they said, yes. So I went there, and the man who met me there was Peter Jansen Smith. Um, Peter was Ian Fleming's literary agent. Right. And he was chairman of Glidrose at the time. And uh, I, did, I didn't actually really know, know who he was when I first met him. Uh, I found that out very quickly, though. But he was very nice. He quizzed me, you know, on what I was doing. And he said, well, can I, do you have anything I can look at while you're here in, in London uh, over the next week? And I'll give you my answer at the end of the, you know, before you leave. I said, yes, I have uh, 
the first section that I've written, you know, because I had it in case anybody wanted to see it. So uh, he kept it and I did all my research and all that. And then at the end, before I was went home, I met with him again. He says, we really like what you're doing. So carry on and you do have permission to use Fleming quotes. Fantastic. You know, so and then that, you know, I became really good friends with Peter. <laughs> uh, they liked the they liked the book when it came out. And that ultimately led, I guess, I mean, 10 years later to me being asked to write the novels. It's amazing. It sounds like um, you obviously got into this sort of world and you had access to all these amazing people that could help you do the book. Were, were there any points where you were trying to pull this book together and you, you there were sort of dead ends that there was something you really wanted to find out and there was just no information that existed about it? Well, that, that had to be probably mostly on the film side because they, you know, they had kind of shut off any any avenues from writers who were not directly involved with Eon. So that's why I had to use, you know, press photos and things like that. Uh, that's one element of the book that I guess I was disappointed with is the illustrate the illustrative book, the part of it, you know, all the photos. I wish I could have gotten better photos and things, but that's just the way the nature of what it was. So I really didn't get to talk to hardly anybody from the film side except for Kevin McClory, who was happy to. Wow, talk, well, who was happy? Yeah, well, that's a good that's a good one to speak to. Yeah, well, he was happy to talk to me. <laughs> he, he wanted his story told. <laughs> so what was he? What was he like, Raymond? Well, he was a, he was also a character, um, very <laughs> gregarious, um, uh, very kind of full of himself, <laughs> and. I, you know, he was just gearing up to do Never Say Never Again. Of course. Wow, you got him right at the the perfect time. Yes, then. exactly. And we met we, we met twice um, for two occasions where we got to talk to each other. And uh, he was very helpful, very forthcoming. And um, again, he was he was he was a wild man. <laughs> how, how how was it to? Um... Obviously, at, at that period of time, there was so much going on with the discussions around the rights to the films and things. How was it difficult to write about the Kevin McClory side of things when you knew all that stuff was happening? I had to be really careful. Um, I mean, it was still a very touchy subject, you know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Eon versus McClory. You know, Ivor Bryce and Ernest Cuneo were right there in the middle of that court case. And they told me their side of the story. And Kevin told me his side of the story. And I kind of, if you read my book, I kind of blended everything that they said into something that was, you know, it didn't really go one way or the other. <laughs> Wise. And that was the way I, that was the way I needed to do it. And, and the, yeah. at the time is the way it had to be done. Um, years later, um, I was asked actually by Eon to work on the, uh, the case, uh, with, uh, against McClory in the late nineties as a witness. Well, uh, I'm not sure I was very helpful, <laughs> but, uh, so well, yeah, that's just... really, yeah, that was really all the, the film stuff that I was able to do it. And at the time, you know, I didn't own a VCR or anything like that. I had to go to the Library of Congress to review some of the movies that I'd only seen once, like some of the some of the ones from the 70s. That's why I think in The Bedside Companion, there are there were some errors uh, of just things I didn't remember. Um, mm -hmm. And 
you know, I, I was writing from, from memory a lot of, a lot I, of the time. I, I don't think I could, whenever I'm writing about anything that I constantly on uh, YouTube, just checking my references and things, I can't even imagine what it'd be like to try and do it from memory. I'd have to skip whole right. sections out right. just because I had no recollection of yeah. what actually happened in them. Yeah. But the strength of the book is is the section on the novels and Fleming, I think, um, especially the novels. I really dug into the novels and uh, tried to do a really good analytical coverage of, of, of the novels. And I think that's that's why I think it's still remembered today. I mean, there's been tons and tons of books about the movies now, and they've 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 gone far beyond what I was able to do with the movies. So um, yeah. that's that's not the selling point of of the bedside companion. <laughs> yeah. So with with all the people that you've um, you met that were linked with with Fleming, do you feel like you know Ian Fleming on on some sort of level? Well, I felt I felt like he was with me uh, a lot of the, for a lot of that trip. You know, I, for example, I, I I spent the weekend with Ivor Bryce at his home, and I stayed in the room where Ian Fleming always slept. So I slept in his bed. The same thing happened at Black Hole Hollow Farm in Vermont, where Josephine Bryce, Joe Bryce, who was Ivor Bryce's wife, she lived in America. Um, I stayed in the room where Fleming slept because that's what he would always stop there when he came to America. That's the location, the locale of the spy who loved me and the short story for your eyes only. Was, Did you find yourself looking around the room for sort of evidence? Oh of yeah. Yeah. That he I, might was, have left? I was trying to soak up everything, you know, just, uh, <laughs> to get the vibe, you know, and I really, you know, it was, it was spooky. Uh, I did feel kind of like he was there, you know, I, I, I was so entrenched in his life at that time that I, I did feel like he was watching over me. I know that sounds wacky, but um, that's, that's... And you spoke to his uh, his relatives. Um, yes, uh, his nephew and his stepdaughter were the... And what what were they like? How How is uh, Ian Fleming seen within their family? Um, because I know they come from quite an illustrious line of Flemings, don't they? So yes, what's the yes. sort of, what was the status of, of his reputation in the family at the time? Well, well, his stepdaughter really loved him. I mean, she thought, she thought he was a great stepdad and, and that he had a wicked sense of humor. Uh, one thing that impressed me, she, she said that he, he liked to be melancholy, <laughs> that that was, <laughs> that, that was his act, that, that it was, that it, that it was a thing he would do just to be and but then he would come out with something really dry uh, that was funny, something kind of, he had a dark wit. You know, one thing I learned was that one of his favorite sayings was what fun. And, and, but he would use that in different with different inflections to mean different things. Like he, like if it was really fun, he'd go, Oh, what fun. Or if it went if he was being sarcastic, he would, you know, Oh, what fun. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, he he was he was kind of a dreamer, and uh, he was a brooder. But he enjoyed life. He loved the outdoors. He loved getting outside. He he was a sportsman, you know, in many ways, especially when he was younger. He loved to drink and smoke cigarettes, and he loved his food. <laughs> he, and what what did you learn about his writing process and how he actually ah. kind of pulled together the, all these books? I learned a lot from that. In fact. I pretty much do what he did. He, he, he would, 
he wouldn't necessarily outline, but what he would do was he would write a full manuscript in one go while he was in Jamaica in the winter, in January and February. He would write without stopping. You know, uh, I mean, he would stop for the day, but he wouldn't go back and correct what he had already written. He would just write, stop for the day. Next day, he would continue where he was, keep going and keep going and keep going until by the time he had to leave Jamaica to go back to England, he had a full first draft of a manuscript. Of course, it needed to go back. He had needed to go back and revise it and, you know, add, delete and correct stuff. But he would do that in England. But it was the getting through that first draft that established the pace and the, you know, the action, the feel of the book. Um, and that's how I, I write my novels. I would write the first draft without without looking back. And but would and would you uh, and would Ian um, plan it out beforehand or would it just be? Yeah, I'm of sure ideas? he did. I'm sure he had notes. Uh, he used to carry around a little notebook in his pocket and he would make notes everywhere he went about things, you know, like cars or women or clothing or drinks or food. He would just jot down this stuff. And he had a master notebook at home, a, a file, a master file where he would take his notes from his little notebook, type them up and put them in the categories. Like he had categories, cars, airplanes, trains, Clothing, women's clothing, men's clothing, um, you know, boats, uh, drinks, whatever. And and whatever he had written, he'd put it in there. And then when he's writing his book, if he needed something, oh, I need a good description of a train here. So he'd look in his file and go, oh, I haven't used this one yet. And 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 he'd he'd have it. Did did that file? Does that file still exist? Yes, it does. They've this? got it. They've got oh. it at uh, Ian Fleming Publications. Yeah, they have it. Oh wow. And you've seen all the original manuscripts, did you yeah. say, at the Lilly Library? What are yeah. they? What sort of condition are they in? Well, they're they're typescripts. Uh, you can see all of his correction, handwritten corrections on them. You know where he would cross stuff out and you know handwritten replacement words or sentences or whatever. Uh, Casino Royale is the one that's the most corrected. Uh, as you went on, you know, toward the end, there are very few corrections. Uh, and they're all bound in, um, you know, slick, you know, leather binding that he had done himself. Um, yeah, they're incredible to, to look at. And, you know, they make you wear these little white gloves to touch them, you know, so you don't get fingerprints or stains mm -hmm. on them or anything. Um, yeah, I went through every one, every page. Interesting you mentioned about the file with all the details and something about the books is, is, is the detail that he puts in to... Uh, everything you know the drinks mm -hmm. the clothes the atmosphere all that sort of stuff is that something that you consciously looked to include in your books when you came to write bond novels yeah well that's part of the that's part of what you expect in a bond novel you you expect all the detail about the the locations you know they they, they are travelogues in a way you know going to the thrilling cities and then you know there's always the food there's always menus <laughs> and drinks and and uh you know that's that was his forte was the describing of things and how colorful he could make things sound so did, you know when i was you... doing the my books i would i would travel to all my locations and stay in the hotels where bond would stay and, and you know eat the food that he would eat and you know, walk did, did you find that 
um, as you learnt more about Fleming and how he wrote that it, de- it evolved your own way of writing or did you feel like you already had that sort of style that he had as well? I'm not sure of, you know, I had, I had been writing for a while. Uh, I After The Bedside Companion was published, it was first published in 1984 and then it came out in England in 88, updated. I had gotten into the computer gaming business in that interim. Right after the, the book came out, I had a literary agent. And they said, hey, um, you're interested in games, aren't you? And this was when computer games were just coming out, you know, PCs. And games didn't even have graphics, really. They were like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the Infocom games like Zork, uh, where they're, yes. they're, yeah. they're text adventures. You know, they tell a story. Yeah. So they had to be well-written. And my agent said, uh, there's this game company. Uh, they have a license for James Bond games. And they want a writer. And I thought of you. Are you interested? And I went, yeah. And that's kind of how I fell into writing computer games, designing computer games, was I got hired to write a James, two James Bond games and a Stephen King adaptation. And these were just these were text adventures. So I started, you know, writing that was how i first started writing fiction and as time went on i got hired recruited by bigger and better game companies into the 90s and by then i was writing phone book sized you know scripts for games and you know they're full of characters and dialogue and plots and you know if if you go wrong then you have to have the alternate plot and you know, all the different branches of these adventure games. So that's how I was honing my, my fiction writing. I also wrote a novel of my own in the late eighties. That is the proverbial first novel that you hide in a, in a drawer. But uh, Peter Jansen Smith had read it. I gave it to him to read and, and he was very complimentary. He said, Oh, well, it's a, it's, you've got a, uh, a, a good plot, not a great lead character. Uh, I gave it to an agent in New York and he said, well, you've got a really great character, but not a very good plot. So, <laughs> so, so I knew I got to, eh, I'll try again another time. But then in late 95, late 1995, I was still working for a game company and I was living in the Chicago area by then. Uh, John Gardner announced that he didn't want to write the books anymore. And Peter called me out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. And he asked me if, I'd be interested in writing a Bond novel. <laughs> I went, uh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a shot. And uh, I had to, you know, come up with a, uh, an outline first on, a, on spec that they would approve, but not only them, but also the British publisher, Hodder and Stoughton, and the American publisher, Putnam. They all had to approve it. So I wrote an outline and that was, you know, kind of, it's kind of like a prose treatment of the book, you know, broken out in paragraph block paragraphs that, that are the equivalent of the chapters. Okay. Uh, I did that and it was approved and they said, now write the first four chapters and we all get to approve them. So I did that and they got approved. So I got the contract to write the book. So zero minus 10 was my first novel. And it was a James Bond novel seen by the entire world. So written by an American. I know. Mm. And I know I got a lot of flack 
for it from from, from your country. <laughs> but uh, there there were people that also liked it too there, um, and it it worked, and they were happy with it. The publishers were happy, so they extended the contract for me to write more. And when when you went to when you set out to write that first one, did you feel like you were equipped to do this? Yes, with all I the did. research. I did. Mm. Um, I knew that's why they asked me. That's why Peter asked me is that I knew the Bond universe inside and out. I knew all the books. I knew all the movies. And so that's I think that's what they were going for. They, they were they were looking for more or less, you know, more of an expert than a famous writer. <laughs> You'd certainly time. put, if, if there was any sort of um, rites of passage for writing a, a Bond novel, you'd certainly put the effort in with what you'd done up until that point. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah. I know, I'm still pinching myself. It was, it was very, um, it was luck and it was, you know, I don't know what to call it. it it's kind of... It, you know, I'll probably, it'll always be my footnote in history, I think, you know, that I was the first American to write Bond and all that. And I, I, I don't take it lightly. Um, I'm very gracious about it. I, I try to be anyway. I, I, I don't take it for granted. And uh, I, I, I'm totally appreciative to Peter Jansen Smith and to Ian Fleming Publications and the Fleming family who had to, you know, say yes um, to let me do it. Yeah. We were saying before you came on, Raymond, how much we, um, uh, even just the titles of your books are great. <laughs> and it must be such a hard job deciding a title for a Bond story. Well, the, the, Did... the novel titles are done by committee. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it's it, the, the publishers, marketing departments and the editors and Ian Fleming Publications and the author all put in <laughs> into a bucket. <laughs> suggestions for titles you know and then everybody has to agree how long does that process take oh sometimes it's it's nerve-wracking um actually only one of the books is my title wow okay. are you going to tell us which one never dream of dying <laughs> ah ah good title good it's a good one to have as the yeah, one that, that you've... was mine that's yours uh and it's out there on the web somewhere what my title my suggested titles were for all the others i'm, I'm happy with all the other titles i'm fine with all the other titles but um, and so beyond that you, you did novelizations of the films as well at the same sort of time yes um, um and those were done very differently because i was working actually with eon um at the time you know whoever was the official author uh, of the Bond novels was the guy who would write the novelization. So GoldenEye was done by John Gardner because he was still the author then. But by the time Tomorrow Never Dies came around, I was the author. So I did those last three Brosnan movies. Uh, and I would work with a liaison at uh, Eon, who uh, for, uh, and it changed throughout uh, the, the tenure. Uh, sometimes it was the, the guy in charge of the marketing, but then eventually it became um, the screenwriters. So by the time I did Die Another Day, I was communicating with uh, Purvis and Wade. And what, what are the sort of constraints when you're doing a novelization of of a movie? Do you, do you have to fit really closely to the the the, the film storyline, or is there a little bit of leeway well, in terms of? Well, I, I definitely had to stick with the script, and uh, the script was changing while I was doing it because you know I was writing it while they were shooting because uh, I had to turn in the book six months before publication. And that was usually around the time the movie came out. 
it was a fluid process and only usually had about six to eight weeks to write the novelization. Wow. Yeah. So it was a, it was a fast, whereas my original novels, I had a whole year. So it was, it was a rush job. You know, it was, it was very intense. So was it a, a little bit of a, 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 a steep learning curve the first time you did it? Not really. No. Uh, okay. I actually thought it was easier to write the novelizations than the original books. Oh, okay. Yeah. Is it just a case of taking the plot points and fleshing them out with descriptions? Exactly. And... Yeah, you've got you've got the stuff there. You know, you've got the story. Getting the story is the hardest part. So the story <laughs> was handed to me. Uh, and um, but if if you put into prose everything that's in a screenplay, you're about thirty thousand words too short. Right. So you do have to flesh it out. For example, in Tomorrow Never Dies, I got permission to add uh, a whole backstory for Wei Lin, you know, what brought her to Berlin to that party chasing after Carver, you know, we don't know. We don't know if you see the movie. (laughs) So I have in my novelization, you you do know. And is that the same for, I I won't go on too much about computer games. I'm the, I'm the computer game fan here. So I've got a lot of interest in that side of things, but you did the, the novelization for Metal Gear Solid. Yes. Was that a sim- was that a similar process? Because obviously the games are a little bit more complicated than, than a film. Well, in that so case, how did you pull yeah. that together? In, in that case, I got the script of the game. Yeah. Yeah. And use that as uh, the basis as well. Yeah. And um, I did a couple of Splinter Cell books, but those were original <laughs> books using the character. Uh, bringing it back to um, Die Another Day, because um, I wanted to ask you about that. You, you said you started on that and they were still shooting it. So did you get, I, I know the ending of Die Another Day changed quite dramatically. When you started out working on the novel, was the ending what was originally planned? or do that, you know? I don't, that I don't know. I, I can't comment. The, the, the ending I got was what I wrote. So, you know, and, if, it, if it was changed before I got it, then I, I, I really don't know. You don't know. And then um, obviously you're thinking back and being the fan of the Fleming books. These films are getting quite far away from Fleming. So was that something that you had to reconcile yourself with? Did you try and tone down some of the outlandish elements of the stories? I kind of, I I mean, at, at Ian Fleming Publications and myself, we sort of looked at the novelizations as a separate Okay. Universe so to speak, yeah. you know, although I tried to keep my bond, the voice of my bond, the same in both. Although, you know, I had to use their dialogue too. Uh, so, eh, it, they were what they were. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I like my novelizations. I think they were fine, but I point to the, the six original books as, you know, they're, they're mine and, and they're like children. So, Let's take it right back to but right back to Fleming then. Um, how from what you learned about uh, Ian Fleming and in his history, how much of James Bond, how much of Ian Fleming goes into the character of James Bond himself? Would you think? Ah, uh, I think a lot. Um, you know, over the past twenty years, you've probably seen dozens of articles in newspapers of some soldier who's passed away. And his family claims that he was the inspiration for James Bond. <laughs> right? How many of those have you seen? Yeah, I've seen a few. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Up a few times. And while maybe maybe that's true to a certain extent, maybe Fleming knew that person. Maybe they worked in you know in intelligence or whatever. 
but I think Fleming based Bond on himself, on on the the wish fulfillment of what he wanted to be or how he saw himself, or uh, because all of Bond's tastes in women and food and drink and clothes are Fleming's. It's his uh, his philosophies of life. You know, the the books are fill, filled with his inner monologues of what he thinks about stuff. That's where you get the real Bond character is his inner monologues. And um, it's pretty much, they, they equal Fleming's. Now, you know, the Bond of the books is not very, uh, it didn't have much of a sense of humor. I think the humor in the books come in the writing and the whole sort of outland. At the time, they were kind of considered outlandish. And that's where Fleming is kind of, you know, pulling everybody's leg and, oh, this will be fun if I do this, you know, and or this plot will, you know, make some people laugh. Uh, <laughs> but Bond himself is a very serious guy until toward the end. Uh, then you can kind of see the influence that Sean Connery had on Fleming, uh, starting with Honor, Majesty's Secret Service, the novel, um, and You Only Live Twice. The characterization is a little more like Connery. And then that's when he also made Bond definitely half Scott, you know? So he'd never mentioned that before. Yeah, very true. Can you talk a bit, a bit about your association with the Ian Fleming Foundation? Because I know obviously that's um, Ian Fleming in name, but not it's not really linked to Ian Fleming, the family. Is that right? Well, it was. Um, it started in the early 90s. Uh, it was started by some Americans, uh, enthusiasts that were... Uh, fairly close to the Fleming family. Um, and, right. uh, when it first started, um, Lucy Fleming and Kate Grimmond, who are um, Ian's nieces, they were on the board of directors of the foundation. Okay. And, and Peter Jansen Smith from Ian Fleming Publications was on the board of directors for until he died. So there was a connection to the Fleming family. Eventually, the, the two nieces uh, left the board, but they were always very helpful. And, and Eon also had, uh, you know, ha has had a good re relationship with the foundation. Ba basically because, you know, they, they've taken, they've gone all over the world finding these vehicles that have been sitting in somebody's junkyard or somewhere that Eon didn't hold on to. They buy them, they bring them back to, um, their headquarters and get mechanics to restore them into perfect condition and uh, then use them for promotional purposes, you know, that help Eon and Ian Fleming publications, you know, in the long run. So it's all good for everybody. Uh, you may have gone to the Bond in Motion exhibit in London. Yeah. A lot of those vehicles were done by the Ian Fleming Foundation. It's now in California, in L.A., uh, an even bigger one, a bigger, it's Bond in Motion, but it's bigger than the one in London. Uh, and uh, many of the foundation's uh, materials are there. Now, I was on the board of the foundation for about, I forget how long, 15 years or something. But I didn't, you know, I'm not a mechanic. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do, I was more sort of a figurehead, I guess. Uh, they had me on the board just to have me on the board <laughs> yeah we spoke to john cork who uh, i believe was involved with the foundation as well oh, he, he was a founding member yes yeah yeah he was a great person to speak to really um yeah, he's really a great generous guy. with his time great guy. um 
as as a fan of the books, uh, Raymond of the Fleming books, um, obviously we're still seeing stuff from the books being used in the films. Um, talk about No Time to Die uh, with the You Only Live Twice stuff. Is there still stuff? Do you think that's yet to be mined from those original books that could appear? Is there anything in there that you think you'd sure. like to see? Sure. Uh, there's lots of stuff. I mean, you know, the Moonra- Moonraker novel has not been used at all. I mean, there's still, yeah, there's 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 some short stories that haven't been used. Um, you know, I have no idea what they're going to do next. I mean, I'm, I'm not even going to speculate. So don't even ask me. Um, I, w- I would I'd, I'd, I'd say there's plenty to use. And there's and there's all these continuation novels as well. Nudge, nudge, hint. <laughs> <laughs> and they used something from a continuation novel, didn't they? Was that Inspector? The yeah, um, yeah, the the torture, the torture scene, scene. Down at Colonel Son, and and Kingsley Amos got a credit at the end yeah. of the credits. Yeah, so it might still happen. They're all yeah. good people. Listen, they're all good people. Uh, I know Barbara. I know Michael. They're great guys. They're they're great folks. Um, we're friendly. Um, I think they've they've handled doing what they do really well. And uh, the same goes for Ian Fleming Publications. Um, they're, they're, they're carrying heavy loads and they do it very well, I think. Absolutely. I mean, we're huge fans of the films. Uh, that's what our whole podcast is about and about the people that, that have made them possible, really. And without Barbara and Michael and you know, Cubby before them, we just wouldn't have the films now um so yeah we're incredibly grateful for everything that they've done yeah was there anything else that you two wanted to add no i think i think we've gone into a lot of depth about all the questions that i that i had just Um, i wanted to just quickly ask you about ivor bryce because he's a name that features quite heavily in the in the fleming story yeah he was a a contemporary of Ian's at Eton. Is that right he goes right back they they met even before that they met when they were around six or seven years old Right. So they were they were lifelong friends. I mean, the, Ivor Bryce was Ian Fleming's greatest friend. They were really close, and they did adventures together. They got in trouble together. They <laughs> they had laughs together. They had you know they cried on each other's shoulders together. They were as close as you could probably get. And Bryce was, uh, you know, he was. Uh, he was a lot like Bond in many, many ways. I think there was a lot of Bryce in Bond because he was a he was an intelligence agent during World War II. He was a playboy, um, very attra- very handsome guy, um, and uh, attractive to women. Um, really enjoyed the the fast life, the the ritzy lifestyle. He had a house in the Bahamas. He had a house in Jamaica, in England. You know, he was. He was a character too. They were all characters. These guys. <laughs> no, it would, have, you, it would have been a fun, a fun day to spend, you know, with Ernest Cuneo, Ian Fleming, Ivor Bryce, doing something crazy, uh, snorkeling off Goldeneye. Yeah, I know. I'm sure they just had a ball, uh, and you know, we're telling jokes and. You know, drinking, uh, sw- swilling the the martinis, and <laughs> having a grand old time. I don't think many people these days could keep up with their <laughs> nights out, from no, the sounds of it. No, I don't think so. Yeah. 
And you talked about uh, Ivor Bryce talking to you about the, the McClory situation, because obviously the McClory court case came at a time where it, uh, and it had quite an impact on Fleming. Uh, yeah. Is that right to say? Yeah, well, he was not a well man at the time anyway. Um, it's uh, I'm sure the, the court case was very hard on him and it yeah. just kind of exacerbated his what was wrong with his health to begin with. So, um, yeah, it was it was a tough time for him. Actually, I think I, I spoke to uh, John Cork about this as well. Um, you've obviously got so much information and you've done so much work over your life on investigating Bond and Fleming and, and all the stories behind it. Do you still actively search for information in, in, in the history of Bond or do you, do you kind of... Is it too much now? And you, you don't. <laughs> well, I tell you, you, you haven't you got know, I, room. I see the movies vision. when they come out. I read the books when they come out. If there's a new, like you know, uh, if there's a new biography of Ian Fleming that comes out, I'll, I'll read it. You know, why not? Um, I don't buy every single Bond publication that gets published now. Mm-hmm. You know, where I might have in the eighties. Um, there's just too many of them. I mean, yes, gosh, yes. there's so many now, but. Yeah, I'm still I, I'm still a fan and and still interested and still very much, you know. I mean, I'm I'm still in touch with the Fleming publications because my books are still in print and being bought. So um, I still promote the stuff and I still I'm still one of the Bond authors. It's a it's a small little uh, fraternity um, right now, and uh, I'm grateful to be a part of it. It's. It just, I know you're a bit of a film historian, uh, Raymond. Yes, and, um, yes. Uh, do you know of any, uh, or have you enjoyed any a, a, any films or TV programs that have been made about Ian Fleming that that could be that you would recommend? Well, I I think my favorite one, or at least the most accurate one, was the one with Charles Dance that came out in 1990 called Goldeneye. Right. Um, you know, it was very sort of faithful. To, you know, I don't like the ones that that kind of portray Fleming as this action hero. You know, there's been two or three of those where, you know, he's jumping on trains and fighting guys and, you know, doing doing Bond stuff. Ian Fleming never did that stuff. You know, he was never a field agent uh, like that anyway. Um, he wanted to be probably <laughs> and he knew guys like that. Uh, but no, I, I you know, I won't. He was, he pretty much was a desk guy. So, um, I'm, and that's, I think that's the problem with doing a, uh, a dramatization of Ian Fleming's life is that he didn't really do any of those cool things that Bond does. Um, I mean, he had some romantic entanglements that are kind of soap opera-ish, uh, <laughs> and things like that. But otherwise, you know, he, he was a smart he was a smart guy to have in, in intelligence during the war. And, you know, that was the period of his life that he felt that he was the most active and the most who, when he gave the most to his country. So and after that, you know, writing Bond was just, as he said, it was all a lark. <laughs> and what a lark that continues to this day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much, Raymond. I really appreciate you coming on uh, and talking about uh, your, your career. Where can um, what are you working on now, and where can people find you if they want to enjoy well, my my website is raymondbenson.com, and I'm on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook. I have an author page as well as a personal page, and 
Actually, my personal page gets more action. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Raymond Benson, and uh, I'm always working. You know, my la- my latest book came out a year ago. Uh, it's a ghost story. It's called Hotel Destiny: A Ghost Noir. Mm. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. Um, and if uh, people want to get hold of the podcast, guys, how do they get hold of us? Uh, you can email at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk or find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at jamesbond8z. Well, thank you, Raymond. It's been a real honour to have you on and uh, to hear your thoughts about Ian Fleming and, and all the amazing people around him that you met. That's uh, just a real privilege. Thank you. Well, you're welcome. This was fun. Thanks for asking me. Thank you very thank much. You. James Bond A-Z will return next week. Thanks a lot. Ciao. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Inglemels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.